Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. This is class number 25. Appreciate having you with us tonight. And we're going to start with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Again, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. And the verse reads... He who trusts in his wealth will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. He who trusts in his wealth will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. So as we do with virtually all of these Proverbs, we want to first ask ourselves, what kinds of questions might we ask around that verse in order to at least set up the framework for what we need to understand in order to uh, get some clarity around what King Solomon is trying to share with us here. He who trusts in his wealth will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. Any suggestion on questions? See you're typing something, so I'll hang on. Uh, trust is being put in created things. Very important point. Thank you for bringing that up. So when a person trusts in his wealth, that's a very created thing. I mean, wealth could mean possessions, could mean money, whatever, but generally it it all has to do with either created things or the opportunity to buy or acquire created things. Uh, Or maybe wealth might be used to influence somebody, but even that's within the realm of, of creation. So here are a couple of questions that occurred as I was putting this together. First of all, what does it mean to trust in your wealth? And why will someone who trusts in his wealth fall? But then I noticed, and I also wanted to ask on the second half, what does it mean the righteous will flourish like a leaf? And why will that happen? And so I started looking at the construction of this verse. And it says in the first half, he who trusts in his wealth will fail. So it's defining a certain type of person with certain characteristics. And the verse is saying that a certain end result will occur to this person. Okay. Now, the second half of the verse has a similar construction. It describes a certain type of person, the righteous, And it says that a certain end result will occur for that person as well. So we've got he who trusts in his wealth, that's the person in their description, then will fall, that's the end result. Second half, the righteous, and that's the person, will flourish like a leaf, that's the end result. 
So now I think we can start to get a sense for the contrast that's occurring here. Because the verse seems to be contrasting he who trusts in his wealth with the righteous. Now, the righteous have a number of characteristics. And so the next question that occurs is, is the verse zeroing in on any of them? Okay. All right. And Pamela Warren Plus, can you hear me clearly now? Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, good. All right. And yes, how is a leaf sustained? That's all could also be an important an important point. So I was trying to figure out, it was a little bit odd because the first, the second half talks about just the righteous, but the second half talks about a person who trusts in his wealth. And so I was thinking, well, what aspect of the righteous are we talking about? So in order to have a contrast uh, and for the verse to make sense, I came to the conclusion that based on the first half, which says, he who trusts in his wealth, it seems to be looking at the issue of trust. It seems to me the operative word in the first half there is trust. The man in the first half trusts in his wealth. So then I ask, well, what does the man in the second half trust in? I mean, it just says the righteous. We don't exactly know what they trust in. That is, where does a righteous person put their trust? Okay, and let me pause and just ask that question to any, any possible answers. Where does a righteous person put their trust? Any thoughts about that? Okay, you mentioned in whatever inspires them to be righteous. Okay, something is pushing them. That's true. We, we also could say, well, the righteous trust in God, which seems like an appropriate answer, but we'd have to clarify, well, what do we mean, you know, if we say, well, a righteous person trusts in God? It's a, it's a really nice phrase that I think gets used a lot in religious circles, but the exact meaning of what that is about, particularly on a day-to-day -day basis, is not so immediately clear. And so for that, I would like to digress and talk about a paper that Rabbi Chait, uh, Rabbi Israel Chait of Far Rockaway, New York, uh, who has been a great supporter over the years of uh, Noahides and his uh, my, um, I guess you could say, ultimate rabbinic mentor, uh, particularly in areas of halacha, in areas of Torah law, he wrote a paper about faith. And the paper is published on uh, the Yeshiva B'nai Torah website, which is uh, www.ybt.org, which I highly recommend uh, that you take a look at and, and read. 
And based on Rabbi Chait's approach, and what, what I'm about to share with you is, is uh, drawn from that paper, so I want to make sure we give appropriate attribution to Rabbi Chait for that. Based on his approach, this is how I understand uh, faith in God. Now, I, I, let me mention, too, that I recognize that the verse is talk, mentions trust. And Rabbi Chait's articles talk about faith. However, I think we'll find, as we go through this analysis, that at least in this particular context, I think these two, two terms are uh, somewhat synonymous. In, in other words, we're looking at how a righteous person views uh, his or her relationship with God. So we'll, we'll explore that. And yes, be happy to type that website on the screen. There it is right there www.ybt.org uh, Highly recommend that website. Uh, there are a number of both uh, written essays uh, there and also a number of classes, uh, audio classes that are recorded that you can play right off your computer. Um, and uh, if you're interested, Rabbi Chait uh, years ago did a whole series of classes specifically for Noahides and while they're not uh, on the site in a way that can be listened to um, directly off your computer you can order them for a very modest fee uh, from that site and they'll deliver them to you on DVD uh, in MP3 format so that you can uh, load them on your computer or pop them in your iPod or whatever. There's about, if I recall, somewhere on the order of 90 one-hour lectures on a variety of topics specifically aimed at Noahides, everything from the seven Noahide laws to um, talking about Talmud uh, and a, a whole variety of topics. Uh, just incredibly, incredibly helpful material. Uh, Rabbi Chait is a great scholar and is able to explain things in a way that makes it very uh, straightforward. Um, <laughs> very good point, Pamela. Very good point. So, um, okay. So, what Rabbi Chait suggests, uh, in, in, when he begins in the article, he states that, and this is a quote, faith in God is the mark of the righteous. It characterizes the unique outlook which the man of God has on reality, unquote. But then we'd have to ask, well, what exactly does faith in God mean? I mean, that certainly sounds like a laudable thing. It sounds like something that uh, we would definitely want to have. But it's not at all immediately clear what that means, particularly with regard to practical everyday life. So, for example, let's suppose that a person goes to the doctor and receives news that he or she has a uh, certain disease or condition that may be curable, but the doctors aren't exactly sure. So, in a context like that, what does faith in God mean? So, does it mean, well, if I have enough faith, 
God will cure my disease? Or does it perhaps mean that I should just accept that all is for the good and this disease condition is just part of that? What, what does faith in God actually mean in a real-life practical context? And Rabbi Chait points out that the, the second alternative that we just described, where I just accept that, oh, okay, everything's for the good, isn't really faith, it's acceptance. And he points out that acceptance and faith are on the opposite sides of experience. In other words, before, you, before the experience actually takes place, you have faith, and after the experience, you have acceptance. So faith occurs before, and acceptance occurs afterwards. The, the old statement of, well, you just have to have faith, you know, isn't in keeping with the Torah approach. Why? Because to just say, well, you just have to have faith, there's no basis for that. I mean, faith in what? Uh, faith in God? I mean, the, the Torah approach isn't about belief, and we've talked about that before. It's about wisdom and knowledge. So I have to know what faith actually is, which becomes a subject that just begs for us to inquire about it. I mean, we, we really need to know and understand this. Again, I, I'm quoting here from Rabbi Chait's uh, essay, The ignorant cannot be righteous. Moreover, since we do not comprehend what is meant by faith, we have no way of knowing if we're fulfilling the injunction, that it would be the injunction to have faith. We don't know if what we think is faith is in fact faith and not some erroneous notion, unquote. So this is such an important topic and, and I th think ties in nicely with this proverb that I'd like to dig in on it a little bit. Now, Rabbi Chait expands on this topic by going into the story of Joseph when he was imprisoned. And you may recall he's, he's uh, kidnapped by his brothers and they sell him off and he's as a slave and he goes to Egypt and then he's um, uh, uh, made a, a servant and he uh, is come to be trusted by his master but then his master's wife gets designs on him and she tries to seduce him and he runs away and then she falsely accuses him he gets thrown in prison and he's in prison for quite a while and then, after he's been in prison uh, for a while, Pharaoh gets upset with his chief butler and his chief baker, and he has them imprisoned. And they stay in prison there a year. And then each of them has a dream, and Joseph is able to interpret the dreams. And when he interprets the dream of the chief butler, he asks the chief butler to remember him because he was stolen from the land of the Hebrews and has been unjustly imprisoned. Now, as you know the story, Joseph's interpretation of the dreams is accurate, and the chief baker ends up being hanged while the chief butler is restored to his original position. 
And then in Genesis 40:23, the Torah states, quote, and the chief butler did not remember Joseph and he forgot him, unquote. Now, again, let me quote Rabbi Chait in his essay. He states, Rashi comments in the words of our rabbis, since Joseph placed his faith in him to remember him, that is Joseph, to Pharaoh, he was destined to be incarcerated for two years, unquote. And you may recall from the story that after the chief uh, uh, butler is restored to his original position, Joseph ends up spending two more years in prison. Further, Rabbi Chait quotes Turgum Yerushalmi, who states that Joseph abandoned the heavenly kindness that accompanied him from the house of his father and placed his trust in the chief steward in created flesh, flesh that tastes of death, and he didn't remember the passage that states and explains, Cursed shall be the man that relies upon flesh and makes flesh his stronghold, and blessed shall be the man that places his trust in Hashem, the word of God, and the word of God shall be his stronghold. On account of this, the chief steward did not remember Joseph, and he forgot him until his time came to be redeemed." Unquote. In other words, Joseph is being criticized for asking the chief butler to say something to Pharaoh that would have effectuated or could have effectuated Joseph's release from prison. Okay? Now, that raises some questions. Particularly, What's wrong with asking for help? I mean, we certainly have learned in our studies that the Torah is practical. I mean, that's what we're learning in Mishlei. Now, if you were stuck in prison and you had the opportunity to ask someone to help you get out, wouldn't that be a reasonable thing to do? I mean, if we think about other Torah examples, let's think about Jacob. When... Uh, he left Laban, and he was traveling, and he heard that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. I mean, did he just sit around? No. He took practical steps to prepare. He divided his camp into two. Okay, that was preparation for a possible war, because if he figured, okay, if one camp is attacked, the other will, uh, will survive. And... He also prepared a gift for Esau uh, in hopes of peace. He took very practical steps in the physical world to prepare for that. We see in the book of Esther that Esther um, used her psychological knowledge of uh, King Ahasuerus to bring about the downfall of Haman. Okay? She's praised for that. So... What is it about the situation with Joseph that is different? Why is he criticized for appealing to the chief butler when he saw a possible avenue of escape from prison? Okay, so let me pause with that question. And I see your comment on screen, and I'm not sure I understand it, where you said the way it happened was better. Uh, 
maybe you can elaborate and tell me a little more of, of what you're thinking there. And if you have any any thoughts about why is it that Jacob could take these steps and Esther could take these steps, uh, but Joseph, who takes a step, he's criticized. Okay, you mentioned Pharaoh's dream. I'm assuming you're saying, okay, the way it was supposed to turn out was for him to be able to... Uh, to interpret Pharaoh's dream, okay, and you've mentioned the time wasn't right. Yes, uh, in the broad scheme of things, that could be, but that doesn't seem, and, and I can't speak, you know, for, obviously we can't speak for God here, but uh, for Joseph to have to stay in prison for another two years, that doesn't seem... Uh, Fair, although in the broad scheme of things, you know, that, um, again, I can't speak for Hashem on that, but interestingly, what, what I guess I'm getting at is the Turgim Yerushalmi uh, seems to be criticizing Joseph for taking that step. And he's not saying, well, you should have known that you had to stick around in prison for two more years because of this dream that was going to come up. He is criticized for... Um, placing his trust in the chief steward and didn't remember cursed shall be the man that relies upon flesh and makes flesh his stronghold uh, and so forth <clears throat> so he's specifically getting criticized for uh, his appeal <clears throat> uh, and, and putting his trust uh, in the chief steward and that's what seems so unusual and odd and so, uh, assuming that Joseph made an error here, then we've got to ask ourselves, okay, <clears throat> excuse me, what's the error? And what would his correct course of action have been? So, let's think about what might have happened if Joseph had not said anything to the chief butler. Well, the chief butler would have been released. I mean, he would have interpreted the chief butler's dream, but he hadn't made the appeal, would you please remember me, you know, and help me out when you get in front of Pharaoh. He just had interpreted the dream. Chief butler gets released. Dream come, the interpretation is accurate. Chief butler gets restored to his position. So all of that would have happened, and the chief butler would have then been in a position to share this amazing story with Pharaoh about this guy in prison who accurately interpreted his dream and the dream of the chief baker because the chief baker got executed and Joseph interpreted that as well. So why didn't that happen? Why didn't the chief butler relate that to Pharaoh right away and what caused him to forget it? What stopped him from doing that? He did remember eventually, that's true. But you would think, coming right out of prison, I mean, this is like an immediate event. Wow, I just had this dream. It's just been been uh, told to me that I'm going to get out free. And, you know, all of a sudden it happens. I mean, you would think that the biggest impact of that event and wanting to share it with someone else, and particularly his, you know, his, his boss, so to speak, 
uh, Pharaoh would be like very prominent in his mind. And the rabbis, uh, yeah, Pamela, it's a good point. I mean, he's obviously relieved. Uh, okay. The rabbis give us an answer. And again, I'd like to quote Rabbi Chait here. And he says this. The rabbis tell us that a scholar is held in the highest esteem in the eyes of an ignoramus, an ignorant person, until the former tries to benefit from him. Let me read that again. The rabbis tell us that a scholar is held in the highest esteem in the eyes of an ignoramus until the former, that is the scholar, tries to benefit from him. I'm still quoting Rabbi Che here. It is a matter of human nature that when one sees another person in need and asking for assistance, one's estimation of that other person is seriously compromised, whether rightfully or wrongfully. Okay, unquote. And as, as Rabbi Chait points out, again I'm quoting, bearing one's soul and the disclosure of how one was repeatedly wronged to another human being in an attempt to obtain sympathy is a double-edged sword. Unquote. And you've probably experienced this. If someone comes to you and cries on your shoulder about something, that may evoke your initial sympathy. But if they talk about how they were wronged and this and that, your initial sympathy may turn to suspicion. Hmm, is this person really totally innocent? Is it possible they brought some of this upon themselves? Yeah, maybe I don't know the full story here. You know, those thoughts start rolling through a person's mind. Gee, is this person really as innocent as they say they are? And have they really been as wronged as they say they have? In a circumstance like that, the original respect that you had for the person may be lowered. And again, as Rabbi Chait said, it is a matter of human nature that when one sees another person in need and asking for help, one's estimation of that other person is seriously compromised whether rightfully or wrongfully. Okay, that's human nature for us to think that way. Now, the chief butler had an idealized image of Joseph before Joseph made his plea. But the plea changed that image. And we get some support for this in the text in Genesis when finally two years later, when the chief baker mentions Joseph, he refers to him as, quote, a young man, a Hebrew servant to the officer of the guard, unquote. Rabbi Chait explains that the rabbis point out that these were belittling remarks by the chief butler. The chief butler is putting Joseph down. In, in a couple of ways. I mean, the Hebrew word that is translated in English translations as young man, in Hebrew is na'ar, which means youth and carries a connotation of foolishness. And he mentions that he's a Hebrew, so he's not an Egyptian, as if to say, you know, he's not one of us. And the term servant, he says, you know, I mean, 
a young man, a Hebrew servant to the officer of the guard. Servant indicates a person of lowly status. So when the chief butler finally remembers him, he's referring to him in sort of put-down language. So we see from that that Joseph's esteem in the eyes of the chief butler was not very high, okay, having gone down because of Joseph's request of him. Okay? And yes, Terry and Lori, welcome. And we are looking at Proverbs 11:28. Pamela, thanks for putting that on screen. And we're talking about the idea of trust and faith and what faith in God really is. And I'm quoting uh, heavily from an article written by Rabbi Israel Chait of Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, New York, uh, that is out on uh, www.ybt.org. Okay. So we see that by making that request of the chief butler to remember him when he was released, it lowered his esteem in the eyes of the chief butler. And that cost him another two years in prison. Otherwise, it seems like the chief butler would have been continued his high idealization of Joseph and would have mentioned it shortly after getting out of prison. So that begs the next question, what caused Joseph to make that request? That, that request of the chief butler that cost him that extra two years. And Rabbi Chait tells us that Joseph's error was that he sought human compassion. Imagine his very lonely situation. I mean, the guy's yanked away from his biological family. He's sent off to, you know, a far land. He's sold as a slave. He's now in prison and separated even from his, his servant, his master's family. And he's been in prison for a very long time. I mean, that's a hard thing to take. And to quote Rabbi Chait from his article, quote, in a moment of weakness, he, meaning Joseph, sought the compassion of the human being, the chief butler. Joseph bared his soul to him, looking for the satisfaction and the sense of security one receives when eliciting human compassion. He thwarted his own goal because of this momentary need. He unwittingly sabotaged the one element he had in his favor, the chief butler's idealization of him, unquote. So, apparently, Joseph's release was imminent, and all he had to do was to do nothing. But instead, by seeking human compassion, instead of relying on compassion from Hashem, that cost him another two years. And what he did was he put his security in the wrong place. He sought that human compassion instead of compassion from Hashem. But men die. 
I mean, that sense of security that we get from a human being is only an illusion. As Psalm 146 states, Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. His breath leaves him, he returns to his earth. The security of men is an emotional security, not a real security. Joseph succumbed to that emotion and it cost him two years of his life. So, what is the faith that he failed to rely on? What, what is true faith in Hashem? And here again I want to quote Rabbi Che. He's put this so beautifully that I just would like to quote it directly. He writes this, and I quote, True faith is not a mental mechanism or device to be used when in need. It is a state of mind, an appreciation of the ultimate reality. In this state of mind, one is in contact both in mind and emotion with the Creator. It is a state in which one senses total security in the knowledge that the Creator knows his plight that all operates under his providence and jurisdiction. Let me repeat that last statement. It is a state in which one senses total security in the knowledge that the Creator knows his plight, that all operates under his providence and jurisdiction. This idea offers man his true sense of well-being. It pervades him with an inner calm in the face of the most formidable obstacles. In such a mental framework, he is not in search or in need of human compassion." Unquote. So the man of faith does not need external approval. Rather, he relies upon his faith in Hashem. Faith for him is not a tool to secure himself or to satisfy his own desires. It's not like a self-centered thing. Rather, faith is his recognition of the true reality. Again, let me quote Rabbi Chait. Quote, his knowledge that the source of all creation knows him intimately, that whatever stems from that source is truly and of necessity the good, is the cause of his total calm and sense of well-being in all circumstances." Unquote. So the man of faith is more outward focused than he is inward focused because he sees himself as just one component of the world and an insignificant one at that. He's not, you know, focused on me, 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 and gee, you know, what's it all about for me and can I get what I want? Rather, his focus is constantly on Hashem and his Torah, his wisdom, and his creation. Okay? Any questions on this point up till now? I find this just to be a hugely important subject because it it affects our whole outlook on uh, on the world and having the the proper understanding of how of Hashem how he relates to the world and what it means to have faith in God 
uh, is huge. And I think Rabbi Chait is beautifully uh, summarizing it here uh, when he says, and I'll, I'll repeat this sentence, his knowledge, um, the, the, the man of faith's knowledge that the source of all creation knows him intimately and that whatever stems from that source is truly and of necessity the good is the cause of his total calm and sense of well-being in all circumstances. So he, there's no guarantee that necessarily everything is going to work out the way that I want. It's that my, uh, the, the man of faith or the woman of faith or the person of faith's knowledge that God knows me, knows the situation I'm in, and, and that everything that stems from him is the good, that is what gives that person total calm uh, and, and a sense of well-being in all circumstances. Okay. Again, any questions on that? Okay. So with that uh, digression in mind, let's go back to our verse. Proverbs 11.28 reads, he who trusts in his wealth will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. So the person who trusts in his wealth will fall. Why? Because he's trusting in something physical. In his case, the wealth. And wealth can help you in some situations, as we've discussed in previous classes, but it can't help you in every situation. It is not the ultimate reality. Having more money, more things, more possessions is not the ultimate reality. And it's not the ultimate object of what is going to satisfy man. Wealth is really just stored up opportunities to buy things or perhaps to influence people. And that cannot save you in every situation. Even more so, if a person trusts in his wealth, that whole idea represents a certain mindset. It is not based on wisdom and knowledge. It's not based on a true analysis of reality. Because if that person did analyze reality, he'd recognize that his wealth is only a tool to something else not an end in itself. Wealth is not the end goal of, of a person's life. And, and, you know, we certainly see examples uh, of people who have made that the end goal and are very miserable. That mindset where, where the wealth is where you put your trust, that mindset will ultimately cause the person to fall because it's not in line with reality. They are not going to achieve the uh, the ultimate purpose uh, of man uh, by following that path. By contrast, there's the righteous person. He flourishes like a leaf because his trust is in the true reality. Now, from a physical standpoint, he's involved in the world of true ideas and of learning and of knowledge. He learns how to analyze situations. He learns how to think those situations through clearly. He sees consequences. He acts in accordance with those consequences. So in the physical world, he has the best chance of success, and his plans should work, 
and he should flourish like a leaf. Leaves flourish, okay, when they're nurtured, uh, and he, the righteous, nurtures himself with true ideas, uh, and so he should flourish in the physical world. And even more so, in the area of mindset, the righteous person does see the true reality. And so he's content with the understanding of Hashem and with his faith in Hashem, as we just described, by recognizing that the Creator knows him intimately and that the Creator is the source uh, of that true reality. So the righteous person, who clearly understands these ideas, is in a position to be at peace and uh, have that the inner calm and sense of well-being that we discussed. So the quality of his life also flourishes like a leaf, in contrast to the wicked who are going to ultimately fall. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, I'll take no response as a no questions. So, let's move on. I think we have time for uh, potentially one more here. Proverbs 11.29 He who troubles his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. He who troubles his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. What kinds of questions come up around that verse? What are the questions we would want to ask in order to clarify what it is that King Solomon is trying to teach us? We're not trying to come up with solutions yet, but we're trying to ask questions and get in that habit and, and exercise that question-asking muscle. Uh, okay, Pamela, you've said it all seems to stem back to reality. Uh, I wasn't sure if you're talking about the last verse or this one. Uh, if it's the last one, I understand. If it's this one, I'm not sure how you're tying that. Ah, okay, good. All right, you're talking about the last verse. Now that makes sense. Okay, a few questions that came up for me on this verse. When it says, he who troubles his own house, what does that mean? What does it mean to trouble one's own house? And then it says, shall inherit the wind. Well, what does it mean to do that, and why does one follow after the other? In other words, he who troubles his own house shall inherit the wind. Well, why does a person get that, and we'll have to decide what inheriting the wind actually means. And then it says, the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. And I would ask, well, why is that? Why does a fool end up as a servant to the wise of heart? And what does the first half of this verse have to do with the second half? I mean, in most of these verses, again, we've discussed they're often in contrast. 
you know, we'll have the wicked versus the righteous, or good versus evil, or a wise person versus a fool. What's, what's going on with the two halves here? Okay, Pamela, you've said destroys the peace of his house. Yes, troubling one's own house would seem to mean, uh, on a, just a straightforward basis, doing actions or some type of speech that will cause strife or embarrassment or other problems and will destroy the peace of a house, your own household, your own family. Maybe a person is argumentative. Maybe they're mean. Maybe they're angry all the time. Uh, maybe they're incredibly selfish. Uh, but they do something, some kind of foolish thing, that causes problems for the family. So that seems to be troubling one's house. And you're right, it's foolish to cause trouble in, in one's own house. Um, okay, Terry and Lori, good. So where does the wind come from and where does it go? You can't hold it in your hand, you get nothing. Exactly, exactly. Now, with regard to the idea of inherit the wind, I'll suggest a couple of different ways, two different ways we could take that. We could take it literally. Uh, that is, in the term of inheritance, uh, as in when parents write out a will. So they write their will out to leave stuff to their kids, and then they die, and the kids inherit their stuff. So it could be that if you had uh, a, a son or a daughter, uh, but in this case we'll, we'll just say son for simplicity, um, that is constantly making trouble, making the household unpeaceful, gets angry at everybody, does foolish things, embarrasses folks, whatever, stirs up all kinds of trouble in the household, they might not leave anything to that son. Because they'd say, why would we leave this guy money? He's foolish. He'll just, you know, wreck people's lives with it. We'll give it to somebody else. Uh, we'll give our things to a wise son or daughter. So in that circumstance, He'll inherit the wind, which Terry and Laura, you pointed out very accurately, means nothing. He'll inherit nothing. He won't get anything at all. And the other way that we can interpret that is that inherit could be interpreted more broadly. The Ibn Ezra says eh, he'll basically end up with nothing worthwhile. And as I understand it, the Ibn Ezra is saying that He's causing problems in his home, and there won't be any positive result for him out of that. He'll end up with nothing worthwhile because of his troublesome actions. Okay? So, either way, the guy is ending up with nothing. Okay? And two possible ways we could interpret it, both of I think which work. One very literal, another more broad. So let's look at the second half. Why is the fool servant to the wise of heart? And Terry and Lori, I'm assuming that is what your last uh, comment refers to. Okay, if you make poor choices, you still will be able to get not much. You may serve the one who has a lot. So a fool is a fool. He doesn't know how to operate successfully in the world. He makes mistakes. He reaps negative consequences because of those mistakes. 
He doesn't know how, or he doesn't learn how to run a business, how to make money, how to work at a job. Uh, and so because he's not using his mind and learning how to think clearly and accumulating knowledge and wisdom, what does he do? He ends up in a servant position. I mean, generally someone uh, who you know can't think for themselves is going to end up serving someone else who can think for themselves. And it says, the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. The wise of heart are in contrast to the fool. They know how to make things work in life. They know how to invest. They know how to run businesses. They know how to get along with other people. They know how to see consequences. They know how to, uh, you know, set up a deal, work with other personalities, all kinds of things like that. And so they are successful in life, and they will likely end up with the low, in the roles of leadership and wealth, while the fool will end up being their servant. Okay. And let me pause Terry Long because it looks like you're writing something. Oh, <laughs> uh, Terry Lurie, very good. Uh, it is best to keep your mouth closed and be uh, thought perhaps not wise uh, or or opens one one's mouth and remove all doubt that's true better to be I think uh, something like better to be silent and thought a fool than to uh, open one's mouth and remove all doubt that's very good very good so now thank you Pamela Oh, uh, I hear you, Terry. Very good. Uh, now comes the big question. Or, I guess, the final question. What does the first half have to do with the second half? We've got, He who trouble his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. Any thoughts about what one half of the verse is having to do with the second half? Okay, Pamela, not thinking about future consequences. Ah, that's good. That's good. In fact, that's, I think, right on target. It seems the verse is talking about two different kinds of foolish people and the consequences, as you mentioned, Pamela, they get as a result of their behavior. Very good. The first type of foolish person creates problems for his household. Now, he could be a smart guy, but he does things that bring trouble to his family. I mean, he could, you know, be, uh, be, be very smart, but if he's got an anger problem or he, 
does things that are mean to other people or whatever, he's going to create trouble for his family, and ultimately he winds up with nothing. He inherits the wind. The second person doesn't have knowledge or wisdom, so he's forced to end up in the role of a servant to the person who does have knowledge or wisdom. All right. And Pamela, yeah, you've, you mentioned immediate gratification. That is an important issue about consequences. Um, the, the fool wants immediate gratification. And interestingly, emotions, remember we've talked about how, you know, <clears throat> you have your intellect and your emotions, and which one are you going to use to make decisions for you? Emotions are in the present, okay? Consequences are in the future. So the fool wants his immediate gratification because his emotion's there, the, the emotion is very immediate. He wants to be able to, to uh, have that right now. The wise person looks ahead at the future and says, well, yeah, I could do that now, but if I, let's say, save that money or, uh, you know, stay home and, and learn versus going out and, you know, going to a party, the long-term consequence of that will be um, that there will be a, a benefit in the future. And we find that the wise person is always looking at the future consequences uh, and ideally not giving in to the immediate emotional gratification of the present. If you think for an example about a uh, college student. So it's college time and there are all kinds in certain colleges of, of you know, things that can distract you from your studies. Oh gee, the guys down the dorm hall are having a party. Uh, or gee, there's a football game going on outside. Or I could be over playing ball or I could go do racquetball or oh gee, I could be out on a date or whatever. So the, the foolish person is going to just say, eh, I'll study later, it's not very important, you know, I can slide through the test or whatever. And the wise, and, and so they'll go do sort of the party life things, get the immediate gratification, but long term, their education suffers, which they will not be able to necessarily make up. Whereas the wise person looks at it and says, yeah, it would be fun to go play ball, but what I really need to do you know, is um, study for this chemistry test and learn this material so that I can uh, have a good knowledge of it and graduate and, you know, be able to reap the benefits of that knowledge uh, when I uh, go to, say, look for a job or do something else. So the wise person is looking long-term at the long-term consequences. A, a different kind of example of that would be... Um, if somebody says something to you or does something to you, let's say in a, in a business environment, that really bugs you. You know, it's just like they, they criticize you or they're rude to you or whatever. Well, the foolish person who wants to gratify his emotions to, to um, uh, you know, get even with the person might write them a uh, blistering email or shout at them in a meeting or whatever. And they will get their, you know, initial emotional gratification. But then what happens? Well, then they've made kind of a human relations mess 
and they're going to have to go clean it up. Other people may observe it. They're going to see, hmm, this person isn't very smart because they don't know how to keep their mouth shut. And, uh, and, and they can't control their own emotions. And then opportunities that otherwise might have appeared might go away. Like, gee, we don't want that person on our team because he can't control himself. Whereas the wise person will say, yeah, I would really love to verbally smack that person for what they just said, but I'm going to control my emotions and my temper and think about the long-term consequences of having to work with that person and uh, you know, wanting to uh, create the best kind of working environment for everybody. So despite the fact that I have been insulted, I'll go deal with them privately about that later. I will not make a public spectacle of it. And people recognize that and they respect that. And so then when teams get formed or promotion opportunities come up or something like that, people say, gee, let's pick this person because they're very wise in the way that they can deal with people. So it's a very important uh, distinction and why fools are classified as fools and why wise people are classified as wise people. Okay, any questions about this verse? Okay, we will stop there this evening then.